Welcome to the Dead Lady Show podcast. I'm Susan Stone. The Dead Lady Show celebrates forgotten and also infamous women who achieved amazing things against all odds while they were alive. The show is recorded in front of a delightful audience at Akud in Berlin, and on the podcast, we bring you a special selection of talks from these events. We have another fantastic story for you in this episode, and Dead Lady Show co-founder... Florian Dausens is here to help me introduce it. Hello, Florian. Hi, Susan. So we have uh, our dear co-founder, Katie Darbiger, presenting today and with a fabulous uh, lady. But first, Florian, uh, we are fresh off our latest live Dead Lady show. Give us a brief recap for those who weren't lucky enough to be there. Well, we uh, decided to celebrate the eve before Valentine's Day. Um, with a night of starry ladies, including the wonderful um, Aglaya Veterani, who was a Swiss writer of Romanian descent who started life as an acrobat, a child acrobat in the circus, traveling the world with her parents, and then came to German quite late, but developed into a wonderful writer who uh, died way, way, way too early. Um, and I definitely urge you to check out her book, The Child Who Swam in the Polenta, The Child Who Drowned in the Polenta, The Child, who, was, in, the the child who Cooked in the Polenta. Yeah, the um, Child Who Cooked in the Polenta. Not a recipe book. No. Uh, it's out with Doggy Press, and you should check it out. Then we had uh, Grace O'Malley. Um, I won't even attempt to pronounce her, uh, her Gaelic name, um, but she was a legendary pirate who, uh, whose life... I think matched Queen Elizabeth the first life exactly and whose um, exploits were almost as legendary as those of the English Queen and lastly um, Katie treated us to a story of a, a Berlin entrepreneur inventor uh, aeronaut Kate Paulus who uh, was a balloonist and she also invented a parachute like specific parachute technology that helped save a lot of lives and uh yeah the city has now named i want to say three streets after her so we were very happy to know more about her one of those streets is in brandenburg but yeah <laughs> <laughs> but yeah that was such a, a delightful talk and we are definitely going to have that coming up in the podcast in a few months uh, from now and so we've got two through threads, or water faden, as they say here, <laughs> um, from those three. And that is we have another great Irish lady, and we have our great Katie together. So our lady today is... Constance Markiewicz, um, who does not sound very Irish, but she, uh, in fact, became a very powerful figure in the Irish resistance uh, against uh, the British oppressors at the time, and uh, has led like led a very interesting life that is full of twists and turns, and really great hats. <laughs> and there's a great, a great, at least one great hat picture that we're going to have uh, on our website for you, and, and a little later we'll tell you how to go see that. Um, but first, Florian, uh, give us another little introduction of Katie, please. Well, so Katie, uh, aside from being the co-founder of The Dead Lady Show, is a marvelous translator and author and judge on many a literary jury. 
Um, she currently is on the jury for the Haus der Kultur und der Welt's Internationaler Literaturpreis that has, in recent years, been won by Teju Cole, among other people. Um, so she's reading a lot of books, and at the same time, she's translating a book, uh, a biography of a dead lady called Anne Lister, who was a, um, a, a early 19th century lesbian and uh, sounds like a very interesting character. So I can't wait for the translation to finish and come out and we can devour it. Uh, Anne Lister has been a very busy lady as well as I've been uh, sitting next to Katie while she's been translating this and hearing some of the excerpts as she has romped her way through the ladies of London, Paris, and Yorkshire. So Anne Lister, that is not Katie Darbish. Oh, yes, indeed. Let's make that point. So <laughs> as far as we know. <laughs> um, so now let's hear Katie on Constance Markovich. I'm a bit nervous. I'm nervous about the Irish people. They're Irish people today, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay, I spoke to I, my friend Deirdre. I had to talk to my friend Deirdre on the phone, who can't be with us tonight. She's in Sligo. Uh, and you'll see why I needed her help. So this is dedicated to Deirdre, and it's negatively dedicated to my history teacher from high school, Mr. Maloney, who taught us a great deal about Irish history. In fact, so much to the extent that we didn't even get up to the Second World War. We were too busy with Ireland. As if there were no women in Ireland. So we're going to talk about, I'm going to talk about uh, Constance Markiewicz. Are there any Polish people here? Oh, because I'm just going to murder that Polish surname, Markiewicz, Markiewicz, whatever. Okay, so this was my first encounter with Constance. Here she is uh, at St. Stephen's Green in Dublin. I thought it's not a very Irish-sounding name, is it? Constance Markiewicz. How did she come to be a major in this Irish citizen's army, which I have never heard of either? Anyway, so, and uh, the second encounter... Here it comes, is um, in this lovely little uh, mini-series. You can watch it on Netflix. Totally historically inaccurate, but very impressive. Is the Countess still here? You nearly missed her. I'm sorry, Dr. Lynn. Elizabeth Butler, madame. Pointed at me. You must do it like you mean it. Mm -hmm. Drink up. You'll be in my battalion. We'll be taking St. Stephen's Green. There we are. Just ignore everything after drink up. Nonsense. In fact, although there she's portrayed as a tough Irish woman, the Countess, the so-called Countess, was born Constance Gore Booth in London in 1868, right near to Buckingham Palace, um, but soon moved to the family's estate at Lissadell in County Sligo. Her father, Henry, was, was um, Irish aristocracy. He was the third largest landowner in the county and also an Arctic explorer. The family, so the family came to Ireland from England in the 1600s. They were essentially colonial settlers. Uh, they were given land by Queen Elizabeth to help subdue the Irish. And that family did a lot of what you would expect aristocratic families to do, lots of hunting, shooting, fishing, and entertaining. Con, as she was known, loved horses and adventure. She was into jolly jeeps, 
and uh, very close to her younger sister, Eva. And she always, her entire life, had this very, very posh English accent, not like in the film. I didn't mention what it was called. It's called Rebellion. It's very good fun, as long as you don't know the facts. So I enjoyed it. I watched it once. It was great. And then I watched it again, having done my research. I was going, what? No. Anyway. So she had this kind of lovely, idyllic childhood. And at the age of 12, a big thing happened. This is her, the tall one, with her sister Eva, painted by, by Sarah Purser. Sarah Purser was an Irish woman who'd, who'd studied art in Paris. And she actually made her living painting portraits. She kind of got passed around the aristocratic families. Um, she called Con idolized and spoilt and always so good-hearted in her absurdities, which included dressing up. Here, uh, she and her sister are dressed up as milkmaids. You can't really see it, but one of the, they've got these cuffs on it advertising a dairy. Um, they also put on plays at home. Uh, she liked sketching, and they read French and German literature. So here we go. 1887, she had her coming out. She was presented to Queen Victoria as a debutante, taking part in the season, which meant four months spent in London trying to find a husband at parties, um, followed by several more months in Dublin. I don't know, have you... Have you I was going to say, have you seen Sense and Sensibility? Have you read Sense and Sensibility? Because there's a, there's a, it's like that. Yes, it's like that. Only there's slightly, either more or less freedom of movement in this actual dress. This is her actually aged 18. It doesn't look comfy. Um, a friend said of her, she was a wild, beautiful girl and all the young men wanted to dance with her. She was lovely and gay and she was the life and soul of any party. Despite this uh, being so wonderful and beloved by everybody, she spent three years not finding a husband, which presumably became increasingly boring. And so she started taking art classes when she was over in London, trying to find a husband, private classes. Her family resisted, but eventually, several years later, allowed her to attend the Slade School of Art in London. So in 1893, that was, which was the first year at that school when women were allowed to draw live models rather than statues. But what they got was they got a male model wearing those bathing drawers uh, and a long cloth over the top with a belt, just so you didn't get any actual flesh. So, but she did find other models over the years, and she developed her skills. She was, you know, a pretty skillful artist. And in 1898, off she went to Paris with a ring on her wedding finger to tell everyone she was married to art. <laughs> Didn't last long. Here she is with uh, Casimir Markovitz, the man of the surname, who was also an artist. They met at a ball. He was six years younger than her, he, was, he called himself Count Markovitz, but probably wasn't actually a count. It was probably kind of a, like a, a figurative count. Um, <laughs> he came from the Polish nobility. He came from a, a similar background, basically. came from the Ukraine. He was actually still married when they met, but his wife died soon afterwards, um, leaving one son, Stanislas. 
1898. I think it was tuberculosis. Anyway, so Cotton's parents made inquiries in diplomatic circles. They never questioned that count thing. But anyway, maybe they found out about it, maybe they didn't. But then they ad- allowed the marriage. She, By this time, she was 30, so they were probably quite exasperated. She had two younger sisters, although Eva actually uh, moved to England and lived with a woman the rest of her life. Um, <laughs> but her youngest sister was quite desperate to get married and wasn't allowed to until Con had done the deed. So they married in May 1900 in London, straight back to Paris, where they lived on their allowances and by selling art. Neither of them really were all that pressing on the art front because they didn't need the money. They weren't pushing the boundaries of art. I think nowadays we might call them trustafarians. <laughs> Baby Maeve on the left was born in 1901 in Lissadell and left with her grandmother pretty much her entire childhood. I'm not going to go into that, I don't know. But in 1903, Constance and Casimir moved to Dublin with Stanislas, who's in the little boy on the yes, on the right here, um, and 64 cases of belongings on the train. They took the train. They led a pleasant life in aristocratic and bourgeois circles, and they were known as the Count and Countess. There probably weren't that many of them in Dublin. Um, and it was a time. So when they arrived in Dublin, 1903, it was a time of cultural nationalism. There was a Gaelic revival in the arts world. The first thing they did was, or one of the first things they did, was they set up this thing called the Dublin United Arts Club with friends of theirs, which essentially was a drinking club, and the women didn't have much to, do, to say, but anyway. But what, hap- what happened was Casimir used to go to Ukraine in the summer, and there's a, you'll notice a pas- pattern emerging. Uh, whenever he went away, she would get up to things. And in 1907, when he was away, she rented this country cottage... And she found old copies of Irish nationalist newspapers left behind by a previous tenant. Here's one of them, Sinn Féin, which means ourselves. We'll hear this name a number of times this evening. Um, She was instantly converted. Um, She wanted to be an Irish nationalist as well, despite actually coming from the ruling class. Um, She began acting, which was already a passion of hers, with the the Theatre of Ireland, which was an amateur troupe, an actress at the time said that they aimed to promote nationalist ideas rather than great acting. (laughs) Um, And a lot of the members later became quite influential in the nationalist movement. Casimir, possibly a bit annoyed, set up his own theatre company and he he wrote and staged um, his own plays that were rather European. They didn't go down all that well in Dublin. They were all about ennui and infidelity... Didn't, it wasn't really quite the thing. But here is Con looking amazing in one of the plays as uh, Lady Alathea in 1908. Her acting was described as striking, <laughs> unpredictable, <laughs> brilliant but most erratic. Anyway, around that time she began attending Sinn Féin meetings. So at this point... Sinn Féin was an umbrella organisation for separatist clubs, but they kept on recycling the name, which is very confusing. Anyway, so uh, Constance was invited to join this organisation here. <laughs> Irish speakers? It is the Inyinina Heron. 
Thank you to Deirdre for helping me to say that word, Inini Naharan. It was, what was it? Ah, so it was a group of militant Republican women who encouraged the study of Gaelic, discouraged low English entertainment. Um, and they were much less moderate than Sinn Féin. So Con turned up to her first meeting late, in evening dress, with the, in a blue velvet cloak, with diamonds in her hair, and the, the rest of the people there were working women. They were not impressed and treated her with a little bit of disdain, which she actually enjoyed. She enjoyed the experience for the first time of not being treated like a countess. And she was immediately, at her very first uh, meeting, elected onto a committee, another thing that we'll repeat, um, to produce a new newspaper, Banneheron, means Women of Ireland. It was the first women's newspaper in Ireland. She wrote a gardening column for this <laughs> newspaper. I'm just going to give you a quote. So remember, this is a nationalist newspaper for women. It is very hard killing slugs and snails, but let us not be daunted. A good nationalist should look upon slugs in the garden <laughs> in much the same way as she looks on the English in Ireland. <laughs> I think I've, I'm trying to be a bit posher in my accent because you'll hear. You just have to imagine that in a really plummy English accent. It's marvellous. Anyway, the paper and Con herself gradually became more radical. They dropped the hat fashion advice columns and uh, started writing about socialism. They had a discussion which may seem familiar to a few people here about whether the Irish nationalist struggle or the women's rights struggle should come first. Plus ça change. Uh, so, oh, sorry, French people, sorry. Um, um, yes, anyway, Con was with the nationalists. She thought she wanted action, and her idea was she wanted to get power for all of the Irish and give that power to <laughs> men and women at the same time. One of the ways to do this was in 1909, she came up with the idea of, of the nationalist Boy Scouts. She started with these eight boys messing around in her back garden with some friends of hers. They went on probably their first and almost certainly her first camping trip. The only important thing they forgot was candles. Yeah, they look quite genteel here. There's Con in the middle. But she trained them as soldiers. She taught them all to shoot because that was uh, one, of, one of her great skills. And they had to be willing to work for the independence of Ireland. They were called Fianna Aaron. You can see their little flag probably designed by Con as well. And in 1910, she went and set up a commune while Casimir was away for the summer, seven miles outside of Dublin, with her friend Helena Maloney and several of these boys. And they lived, they had 12 bedrooms, hardly any furniture, and it was a, just a complete mess. She was hardly ever there because she was attending meetings all the time. But it lasted about a year. Anyway, so she's working with these boys rather than entirely committee-based work. And she realized that, in fact, nationalism wasn't going to solve all the social problems that she was discovering. So Con turned to the labor movement and drifted towards socialism. 1910 saw her first arrest, of which I'm particularly envious, for making derogatory remarks. <laughs> After waving a black flag at King George V and Queen Mary in Dublin. <laughs> Um, so her home, she moved back to Dublin, her home became a hotbed of subversion 
under constant police surveillance, and that basically didn't change for the rest of her life. So the test, though, for the labor movement came in 1913. There was a major lockout, and strikes uh, came out in, in solidarity, and up to 25,000 people were out of work in November of that year. The employers wanted to starve the unionized workers into submission, but Con set up a team of volunteers to provide meals for thousands of people every day at the union's Liberty Hall. This is a sketch by um, William Orpen, who she knew from the Slade Art School. Starving people, starving poor people. And it earned her the love of Dublin's poor. Here she is being admired and loved by Dublin's poor. But her own funds were running short, and Casimir left for the Balkans to work as a war correspondent. 1913, bad time to go to the Balkans. It was pretty much the end of their marriage, as it turned out. And also the strike ended in defeat. But the Irish citizen army had been set up. We saw them at the very beginning. Uh, they trained with hurley sticks. Uh, they had uniforms or armbands if they couldn't afford a uniform, including this beautiful fetching hat. And they were the more radical of the two Irish nationalist forces, and they allowed women to, you know, do all the, all the fighting and shooting, unlike the volunteers, which had a separate women's branch called Kumanaman. I'm told, I'm told that Irish has a, a very logical orthography, and I just don't understand it, so. I'm not laughing, I'm laughing with you. So the Great War broke out, which, of course, was the perfect opportunity to rise up against the distracted British. The plan was, we're going to have a revolution on Easter Sunday, 1916. Now, Crown was totally into that, and she <laughs> went to the photo studio in advance <laughs> to have pictures taken in the outfit she'd picked out for the revolution. <laughs> I would do that too, I think, wouldn't you? <laughs> I'd I would probably just do a selfie at home, but... So here she is in her ICA uniform and her nice hat, which she wore throughout the fighting, and a gun. So after an initial setback, the Irish people are going, oh, yes, I remember that, yes. The uprising started on Easter Monday, and a republic was proclaimed from the captured general post office. There were only about 1,000 men and women involved, but it was a holiday, so the military was largely on holiday, taken by surprise. Con had made a flag out of a green bedspread decorated with gold paint mixed with mustard because the paint a bit got a bit dried up in the attic, um, <laughs> which was hoisted from the GPO. She started off as a liaison officer between captured buildings, so ignore what you saw in the beginning of that video. But what happened next? She, yes, she was then ordered to join in the fighting at St. Stephen's Green, where I saw that statue, as a sniper. And then she was made second in command. She was a good shot, apparently, and she fought alongside the men. But she was forced, or they were all, in fact, forced to re retreat to the College of Surgeons opposite. They held out for a hungry week, but the British Army brought in under artillery and blasted the rebels' headquarters into surrender. Con kissed her gun goodbye and marched to Kilmainham Prison. She expected execution, but she was spared because she was a woman. The sentence was commuted to penal servitude for life, and all the other leaders were killed by firing squads. So Con said, I wish you had the decency to shoot me. She was sent to Aylesbury Prison in England, where she put up with bad food, hard labor, lack of hygiene, 
and she was 48 years old. She was released under an amnesty in June 1917 and got a hero's welcome back in Dublin, which we will see in a minute. It's silent, so I'm just going to talk over the top. Quite a lot of people. So the new umbrella group, which they called Sinn Féin, ruled that the Republic now had been established and what they wanted was recognition and then they wanted a ref referendum so the Irish could choose their form of government. Con was elected onto the Sinn Féin executive along with three other women, Mr Maloney, out of 24 members. But tensions rose again, so the British invented an uh, Irish-German plot, the war was still raging, so as to arrest the leaders. So back to jail for Con. This time she was in Holloway Prison in London. What happened next was the Great War ended. The UK granted the vote to women over 30, and they were allowed to stand for election as well. And they held elections in December of 1918. Sinn Féin fielded two women for those elections. One of them was Con while in prison, and they won most of the seats in Ireland. Con was the only woman elected in the whole of the UK, which at that time meant Great Britain and Ireland. So those Sinn Féin re representatives who weren't in prison set up this thing. It gets much easier. The Irish gets much easier. The Doyle Aaron, um, which was the first parliament of Ireland. It was idealistic, it was ambitious, and it conducted its business in probably rather halting Irish. Con was released in March 1919, by which time guerrilla warfare had broken out in Ireland. She was made the Doyle cabinet minister for labor and was the only woman in government for several years, apart from Alexander Kolontai in the Soviet Union, who I think we must actually, have we not? Oh, we, I need to talk about Alexandra. Oh. Um, anyway, the Soviet Union was the only country to recognize the Irish Republic in 1919. She was arrested again, of course, for seditious speech and didn't deny saying, burn everything British except its coal. So she spent four months in Cork jail, during which time the Doyle was declared illegal, Sinn Féin and Cumann were banned. So on her release, Con went on the run. She wrote to her sister Eva, it's awfully funny being on the run. I don't know which I resemble most, the timid hare, the wily fox, or a fierce wild animal in the jungle. Uh, the Doyle went on working as the best it could in its legal state. Um, Con's department masqueraded as a letting agency and a music school, and, and there were a number of pianos on the premises so that if there was a raid, they could pretend to be teaching each other how to play the piano. <laughs> she was eventually captured in 1920, released in 21, by which time there was a truce in place. So a number of Doyle members went to England to negotiate with the British government. Under the threat of war, the result that came back was the Irish Free State, which was still attached to the empire, like Australia and Canada, and where the MPs still had to swear allegiance to the British crown. Con, of course, was not, <laughs> not really into that. She wanted a workers' republic, and she and all the, the other five women in the Doyle voted against the treaty. But it was narrowly passed, and the Republicans walked out of the government. So Con went to Paris and the USA to raise support. As you can probably imagine with her kind of dramatic tendencies and big hats, she was very, very good at PR and she raised 20,000 pounds, which at the time, I don't know, I should have worked out how much it is, huge amounts of money. Um, back to Ireland for the next election, lost her seat, 
fighting broke out between the Free State and the Republic supporters in May of 1923, and Con, being a joiner, joined in. There was another week of shooting before the Republicans downed arms. Con went off on another tour to Scotland and England, won back her seat but didn't attend the Doyle because she would have had to swear allegiance to the Crown, arrested again, and so on and so on. It was a very lonely time for her. Her comrades were scattered. She was a woman who needed to be heroic, and there was no, no space for heroism during those years. But in 1926, she joined a new party with a fairly easy to pronounce for English people name, Fianna Foyle, Soldiers of Destiny, which she saw as a way out of the vacuum that they'd ended up in, using constitutional methods rather than force. And I think it was probably a ray of hope for her at the time. At an executive meeting of Fianna Foyle in July 27, Con fell ill and was taken to hospital, insisted on being in a public ward, and she was treated for appendicitis and then peritonitis. She had a lovely ending. We always say, oh, make sure there's something cheerful because they die at the end. But actually, I love Con's death. It's just delightful. And she seemed to be quite into it as well. Casimir and Stanislas turned up from wherever they happened to be at the time. And so did Maeve, her daughter. And Con said, this is the happiest day of my life. People sang and prayed outside the hospital. And she said, but it's so beautiful to have had all this love and kindness before I go. She died surrounded by friends and family at 1 a.m. on the 15th of July, 1927, followed, of course, as you can see, by a huge public funeral. I'm totally impressed by this woman's utterly unpredictable life story. Who would have thought that she would go from the London season in 1890, no, whenever it was, 18-something, to the world's first woman cabinet minister, a gun-toting revolutionary. And I'm going to leave you with her very posh English voice from a record she made in the USA. She was totally fated. She was a big hero, got a hero's welcome to the USA in 1922, and some film material from 1918 when she'd just been elected. Today in Ireland, it is not a question of leaders of De Valera, or Collins, or Griffith. It is a question of a republic, such as the American Republic, versus a miserable travesty of Canada's constitution. Each man and woman among us Republicans understands and knows what he or she wants. If De Valera was taken from us, the cause would go on. Go on for the Republic. De Valera's position today is unique. He embodies all that is strongest, noblest, and best in Ireland. His is the voice that tells the world what the spirit of Ireland stands for. What our young soldiers would give their lives for. Our real leaders today are those who died for Ireland. Thank you. Katie Darbyshire on Constance Markovich. 
Now, earlier this month, uh, Con was celebrated in Ireland on the 150th anniversary of her birth with a graveside commemoration ceremony. Uh, she is still very uh, beloved and fondly remembered there. Also this month, a delegation from the Eristas, the Irish Parliament, is traveling to Westminster to present the houses of the British Parliament with a portrait of Constance, which would mark the first time she'd be acknowledged there. <laughs> also interesting to note, as of February, the Sinn Féin party has its first female leader, Mary Lou MacDonald. And so as I mentioned, and as you heard in Katie's talk, there are some great pictures of Con out there. And uh, you can find them on our website and some other places. Uh, Florian, help us out with the details. Definitely check out deadladyshow.com for uh, the podcast that you're listening to right now and the show notes that are paired with it. So some links, some books we recommend about her and those wonderful pictures that she had taken of herself with various guns in a photo studio. And, uh, of course, you can find all of our other podcasts there. And uh, what's been great is we have more and more listeners every month. So thank you to all of you joining us from Australia and the UK and the US and the Netherlands and, of course, Berlin and Germany. And uh, please do tell your friends and send them to us. And um, we would love to have your ratings and your reviews, especially if you listen on iTunes or these uh, some of the other uh, podcast platforms, because apparently, I heard on another podcast, they help other people find the show. So uh, that's what they say. I'm, I'm going to believe it. So please do that for us if you have the chance. Uh, you can write us an email, info at deadladyshow.com. Find us on Instagram at deadladyshow and the Twitter at... Dead Lady Show. All right. There you go. <laughs> so that is it for us today. Uh, we have another great podcast coming up for you next month. Thank you so much, Florian, for being here. Thank you, Susan. And thanks to Katie. And we'll see you next time. Support for this episode of the Dead Lady Show podcast comes from the Berliner Senat.